Welcome, and thank you for joining Speak Up for Safer Care. Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of Safer Care Texas, the patient safety division at the University of North Texas Health Science Center in Fort Worth, Texas. Our mission is to challenge traditional thinking to eliminate preventable harm. Speak Up for Safer Care illuminates gaps in care, process, or design that lead to preventable harm in all healthcare settings. I'm your host, John Sims, and the director of Safer Care Texas, and joining me is our co-host, Leanne Cunningham, Strategic Operations Assistance Director. Good afternoon, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Jeff Beeson, Managing Psychological Stress During Emergencies. Dr. Beeson is an emergency physician with over 30 years of interprofessional practice, starting as an emergency medical technician working in rural settings, a paramedic and registered nurse in emergency departments and air medical programs, to then becoming an emergency physician whose passion lies in improving healthcare systems. A recognized leader in integrated healthcare delivery focused on interprofessional teams in top-of-licensure practices that are changing the landscape for population health. Dr. Beeson, thank you so much for joining us. So we've all faced emergencies to some degree, and emergencies in, in healthcare settings are a little different than emergencies in you know other settings, but um, they, they, they often occur without any kind of warning. How do you approach life-threatening emergencies? Well, I think it's uh, really a personality um, trait that certain people have and don't have. Um, there are individuals that really have to have things planned out. And then there's others um, like myself that we don't plan well. So we, we prepare for anything. And I think that is the, the key to any type of emergency type of response or emergency care providers, really the preparation, um, because you, you don't know what's coming in. And most often the times you don't get a, a heads up warning. Um, there was an old book uh, written by a, a surgery resident out of Denver General back in the early 80s called The House of God. And Samuel Shim wrote in there, you know, the first rule in emergency is to take your own pulse. And I remind people of that all the time. I mean, when, when you see things or you feel things are getting out of control, the first thing you need to do is check your own pulse, calm down, um, and then sequentially move through the systems and the steps that need to be taken. Dr. Beeson, I've known you a long time. I knew you as a student, and you truly epitomize healthcare professionalism. I'd like to ask you, I know I, I know that you report on disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes. As a leader, how do you first manage your own stress? And secondly, how do you help others manage theirs? So in my um, role as, as working with our state's search and rescue teams and, and go into disaster response, that's kind of, I guess, what you're asking about. <clears throat> it, it's amazing the amount of time spent in preparation, preparing. Um, in those types of emergency response, um, everything is is spelled out in the organizational structure, and that's an important piece. Um, so it doesn't just happen by accident. I mean, we, we train hundreds of hours a year um, in, in preparing, and I think that's the key thing that we often take for granted. I mean, from a medical standpoint, my primary responsibility are the team members. Um, we have three teams, um, just on, on Texas one, when you had Texas two, I mean, you're, you're talking five to 600 providers. Wow. And so uh, on an annual basis, I spend most of my time making sure that those folks are healthy and well, um, in preparation for deployment. Um, you know, they're, they're firefighters, engineers, you know, nurses, doctors, all kinds of stuff. And so making sure they're healthy and well. And then from a logistical standpoint, 
is is the cache management is huge when you think about the different disciplines from from rescue to search um, to logistics management to planning. I mean, everybody has their own cache of equipment, and it's you know a million dollars worth of equipment. And, and we literally go through it multiple times every year. And so and that's really the key to any disaster response is really the preparation before the disaster occurs. And then knowing what, what everybody's role is going to be when disasters happen. We, we see that now, and you, you can go to any large academic you know, trauma center, right? And, and especially in teaching hospitals, you will see different posters or things on the wall that, that tell you, depending on what position you are around the patient, what your roles are in, in that. And that's kind of what we do, right? So we're responding to a disaster. The disaster is much more than a single patient, but we know what everybody's role is. And I, and I have trust and faith that my colleagues are doing their job, so I don't have to worry about it in the same thing they know that I'm going to do my job. And so we work collaboratively. So you do feel like it minimizes stress? Um, yeah, the, the, the stress is really the mindset. I mean, you, if you don't get a little excited or nervous, then something's wrong with you. I mean, that's the, the typical, I mean, that's what our body is designed to do when you think about the flight or, you know, fight or flight response of what catecholamines do. But we do know, especially in our, in, in emergency professions, emergency responses that over time, there is a fatigue to that stress. Um, and it's not really the stress goes away that our threshold for stress changes. Could you give me an example of what patient harm might happen if that stress isn't managed? So um, if if you – this is seen in law enforcement, firefighting, you know, a lot of public safety rooms. You have to practice like you expect to respond. Um, and so that's one thing I see and worries me often in, in medical simulation is that we focus more on the skill of, of performing some intubation or IV start and, and less about the whole environment of, of when you're going to perform that skill and the critical decision-making that goes into that. And so I think it's very important when we are running simulations and we are doing things is that we do it exactly like we are going to expect some you know student, doctor, nurse, whatever, to, to respond in that time. And so that does take stress out. The first time you do a simulation and you really are, are preparing to perform it, I mean, the more realistic, if you set the expectations, I want you to do everything you're going to do in real life, the, the, the pressure goes up. And so then when you're actually in that situation, it, it becomes second nature. And it's not like the first time you've done that. It just kicks in. Right. So in, in our search and rescue, we have three teams. Um, in, in every third year, you have an operational exercise. The other two years, we actually have a mobilization exercise. And so when the pager goes off or you get the phone call that there's a disaster, you know, there, there's a sequence of responses. We're all over the state of Texas and we have to be at a college station within, you know, two hours and, and, and we have to be out the door in three. If military is sending a jet and we're going international, it's got to be loaded in four. So you, that just doesn't happen, right? So when you do these mobilization exercises and, and people get down there, they check in, they know the processes, they get their equipment ready to go, then when the actual no-notice event occurs, it, the stress is down because you've done it before. And so I think that goes into the mindset. And the second thing is you know that no matter how much you plan, something's not going to work. Right. And, and it's how do you work through the events when something's not going as expected? 
um, in freaking out, that goes back to, you know, Samuel Shim checking your own pulse. That's the key thing, remaining calm and sequentially moving through things. And, and there are people that have that innate characteristic and there's others that don't. And those are usually the people that know exactly what area of medicine they don't want to go into. Well, you know, Dr. Beeson, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But first, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about checking everybody. Um, everybody's wellness, are they, are they ready? Um, that speaks to human frailty. And we've talked about that on a couple of our of our episodes. Um, and that's, you know, there's lots of things that people go through in their interprofessional, I'm, I'm sorry, their interpersonal lives that when put in an emergency situation, it's going to affect how they respond. And so I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you do that with your team. The other thing I wanted to share is um, I remember a time when there was a physician, that's why I laughed when you said some people know that they're not supposed to go into that profession. Um, we were doing a procedure, and there was a physician doing the procedure. It was a GI procedure, and it was in an intensive care unit. And there was a massive um, GI bleed during the middle of that. And he freaked out. You know, we've got a whole staff of people there, and he freaked out. And so when I think about that, I, I, I just – the leader, whomever's leading – They've really got to check their own pulse, right? Because everybody else is watching them. If the leader is freaking out, it's like we don't have a chance. Definitely, that that sets the tone um, of the team response. And so, in many resuscitations, surgeries, any procedure-based thing, I mean, it, it's just like being an aviator. There's a checklist, mm-hmm. and so as many things as you can get into an algorithmic response, mm-hmm. and you you practice that on a regular basis, then it becomes second nature, as I said before. And I think that's an important piece. I mean, you think about advanced cardiac life support. I mean, ACLS is, you know, not designed for the individual that does cardiac resuscitation on a regular basis. It's designed for the person that rarely, if ever, does cardiac resuscitation so that they don't have to think. They can pull out that checklist and sequentially move down the steps. And I think we have often, you know, misrepresented that. I mean, you, you look at, you know, in healthcare, everybody has to have a CPR card. Well, there's no evidence that, that that really changes the response. If you're an individual that does CPR on a regular basis, you know, is, is that really what it comes down to, that you have some card that says you're good at it? No. I mean, it, it comes down to um, monitoring um, the, the quality when you do things. And so that goes to the training aspect perspective. Um, it, when you're having those events, I mean, you know, in the trauma world, we have uh, morbidity, mortality, M&M conferences and reviewing things. And I think that's that's the key thing that not only doing a response or doing things, but also learning after the fact and, and evaluating. We do it in the the um, incident command world and in, in the, the, you know, the, the, um, you saw a response or any disaster response. We call them after action reviews. So every event we have, every discipline goes through and summarizes what went well and what didn't work, um, both in your own specialty or discipline and also amongst other disciplines. Because those are really the things that help you improve and get better for the next time you respond. Exactly. You have to have a very strong culture for that to be successful, right? Because if that's done in a, in a punitive, like what were you thinking you know, you you do, and that goes to psychological safety. Correct. I mean, just like in any hospital doing a cardiac resuscitation or any trauma resuscitation, I mean, everybody in the room needs to understand not only their roles, 
but also they need to feel comfortable when they see something, even if it's not within your responsibility, but speaking up when you see those things. And, and that goes to, I mean, we have all been in environments with leaders, if that's what you want to call them, um, who are, are not open to suggestions. They know everything in, in more of a dictatorship style. Um, and that's the culture that leads to bad outcomes and, and, and safety risks. Um, and, I, and I tell folks all the time, I mean, when we're about to go out and event, I need everybody to speak up. I mean, if you see something, say something. If you're concerned, you have that little twitch, you know, in your stomach, you need to say something. Because it may be you may be seeing something or have a concern that the rest of us don't see, and so that open communication. And to your point, John, it's important as leaders that that we take criticism well, mm-hmm. um, and not it's human nature to become defensive when people are pointing out things. Um, and, and I see that more in people that are insecure in their positions. They really get defensive when they're insecure. So as leaders. We need to create a, a safe environment, um, and we have to be open to things that sometimes may hurt our feelings, um, and, and they might be wrong or indifferent, but, but it really letting individuals know that you know your perception is your reality, and we need to talk and work through those things. Sure, and, and you need to have a shared mental model on what's the outcome. It's not about you. It's about the team. It's about, it's about the event and managing it well. Right. Um, can you describe an event – and, and, and you mentioned that, um, that, you know, you're stressed at every one of them. It's how you manage it. But tell us one where maybe you didn't manage the stress um, the way that you've been accustomed to as of late. What was that event? How did you o- overcome it? And then what was the eventual outcome? What did you learn from it? Man, you got to put me on the spot here, didn't you? So, <laughs> so I, I think of – uh, safety is a primary example. So when we go on deployments, you know, we have a safety officer. We actually have, you know, two safety officers, safety, safety directors. Um, but you're talking about a team of 100. And so when we get into certain responses, I mean, the system was designed for the, you know, the rebel pile where you think everybody's going to be like you just saw in Florida working in one environment. That's not the vast majority of our federal responses in the country. They're, they're hurricanes, tornadoes, wildland fires, where you end up wide area searching. So your team of 100 gets split up into, you know, small teams of 5 to 10, and they're covering a huge amount of dirt. But but the redundancies of safety, the redundancies of medical were not designed to support that kind of distribution. And mm. so how do you work collaboratively? And so we, um, we had a, a hurricane response years ago, and it was like a disaster on top of disasters because in other parts of the country, there was already things ongoing. And so, I was wondering if you were going to talk about that. Yeah, I do remember. So, so this is one example. So, you know, the vast majority of our team, we, we have charter buses. So we have bus companies that we charter. And um, in, in this case, our typical charter bus was already all chartered out. So they, they kind of do the Uber-esque type of thing. They throw it out to the nation and say, anybody, you want to pick up this team in Texas and take them to Florida? Um, and so this bus showed up. And, uh, you know, it's nothing that you'd want to put your family on, right? And so we're in such a hurry to get out the door, and, and then we're driving through horrible weather and, you know, Half of us are in vans and trucks pulling boats and variety of semi-trucks pulling our logistics team. And then you, you've got, you know, a, a significant portion of our team on this bus. Um, and, and when we got to our first stop um, where we overnighted waiting for the storm to come ashore, um, we had a serious conversation with our leadership. It's like, so 
would you want your family on this bus? And we all agreed no. And so then what would we do about it? And it came to the point, you got to stand up and say, we're not putting anybody in this. We have to get another bus. And and so so those simple things, when you think about safety of, of the equipment, we take things for granted. And, and what do we learn from that? So we change now. So Many of the federal teams, when you call charter bus companies, we work with local, you know, highway patrol who who do DOT inspections on vehicles. And so when those charter buses show up, the highway patrol's there. And they're doing a, a Department of Transportation inspecting on there. And guess what? Now the, the bus drivers actually come in and get medical clearance just like the other teams do. And so those, those kind of things that are unexpected that really comes down to safety of a team. I mean, if that bus were to have a blowout or something, would have, the brakes would have gone out. I mean, over half of our team would have been, you know, um, out of service if not seriously injured. And so those things that are not medical, I'm, I'm a physician. I don't think of those things. But when you put the safety hat on, you start thinking about the risk to the team um, by the environment you put them in. And that goes back to what you said earlier, uh, see something, say something, no matter if it's going to slow us down. We, of course, here call it speak up for safer care, right? So, you know, in in the space of uh, of HSC and, and our, um, our, our mission to um, create and produce the uh, providers of the future, what, what, how, what would you t- how would you prepare medical students for approaching some of the things that, that we're talking about? Because they're going to they're going to get out there. They're going to be faced with uncertainty and emergent situations. What would you tell them? So the first thing I instill. So I'm, I'm a faculty advisor for our osteopathic medical school here. And so the, the students that I advise when I meet and, you know, give them my opinion and guidance on things, it's really about um, um, letting them know that, yes, you, you may be the physician um, and you may be the captain of the ship, but you are not the crew of the ship. Um, in, in getting them to, to change their mindset from the get-go. Um, and you see this historically in various disciplines in, 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 in um, graduate medical education, so residencies and other things. You, you see the, the culture in certain high-stress environments to be that very military-ish, very harsh, don't speak up. Um, and I think ultimately that we have seen changes at least in the last 20 years in that because that environment impedes that psychological safety and, and, and really suppresses people's ability to feel like they can speak up and say something. I also think it goes to setting the example is that, you know, your your profession often can't – don't let that become your identity, right? It, it's it's a job. It's your, your chosen profession. It is really an art, something that you live, breathe, and do, but don't let it become – who you are. You still have to have a, an identity, a personality, something outside of whatever your job or your profession is. Mm-hmm. And I think that really um, hopefully brings our our providers, our physician providers, um, especially in, into the realm that working in, as a team and not just creating the culture of it's okay, you know, I want you to say something. But but intentionally and purposefully asking, hey hey John, how did you feel that went? Did you see something? Um, I I do that when I was in the emergency department full time. That's one of the last things I would do when we would complete a you know a cardiac resuscitation and you're about to terminate your efforts because you've done everything, mm-hmm. right? In in 
I would go around the room and ask everybody, is there something we're missing, something we're not thinking about? What else should we do? And so it is partially me encouraging open communication, but it's also therapeutic for those individuals to feel like, you know, we did everything that we could do. Um, and, and you instill that in the next generation, right? Somebody instilled that in me. I have my mentors, and I think that's, that's what you become as you, as you go forward. It, the clinical aspects of, of healthcare are easy. It, it is the um, – I don't say easy, but they're the easiest aspects of it. The, the social, the personalities involved, that's the hard part. I remember years ago um, when I was the medical director here in the city, we, had, we did a resuscitation in an individual's home. And, and they were asystolic, meaning they had no cardiac activity the entire 30-plus minutes that the, the, the fire department and the paramedics were resuscitating in the house. And so they were, they were ready to stop, but the family was, was so upset because they hadn't shocked the heart yet. Well, if you're a clinical person, you know that no activity, a shock is not indicated. And the crew's calling me, and you know the family's upset because we didn't shock them. And I said, so shocking an asystolic heart's going to do what? What's going to do nothing? Is it going to hurt anything? And they said, no. And I said, well, if it's for the family's comfort and so that they feel everything was done, then shock it. I mean, it, it's not going to change the outcome. It's not going to hurt anything, but they will feel that everything was done so that they don't have hesitation and frustration. And so that's just a different approach. But we, we see those things frequently in medicine to where, you know, no, it's not indicated. We're not going to do it. But we, we fail to look outside the clinical aspects of things and look at the interpersonal, the, the, the comfort of family, colleagues, nurses, you know, as physicians. And, and to your point, Leanne, it was unique for me because I grew up as the EMT who was the paramedic, who was the nurse, who became the physician. You're taking so still, my question. So still today, <laughs> you know, I was just in a, a meeting in Dallas with, with a big national group looking at, you know, some really innovative healthcare stuff. And, and when I speak, I, I often view myself as that same, you know, 17, 18-year-old kid on the ambulance. Although I'm not anymore. I wish I was still. But um, that's how I view things. And so it's kind of a unique view for me. And that that is very interesting. And to Leanne's point, I was going to point that out. You've worn several different hats in your healthcare career, right? Um, me, as an RN, I mean, when the, if the physician says this is what we're doing, that's it. That's what we're doing. Um, I applaud you, though, for asking the team, hey, what did we miss? And for encouraging that open communication. I think that that is awesome. And I think that we need to see we need to see more of that. Because here's the thing. We all strive for, for, for perfection, right? But individual perfection is never attainable because we're humans and we are fallible and we're going to make mistakes. Um, and that does include, unfortunately, physicians, and that's not a bad thing. No, it's not. I mean, we we it's hard because we have the perception that there's a zero percent, you know, there's zero acceptable miss rate. But we all know that zero miss is is unobtainable. And so, you know, is there an acceptable number? Is there an acceptable number of errors nationally? One percent, two. I mean, nothing acceptable. But we need to, to have the understanding that things are going to go wrong. I mean, that's the, 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 the whole theory of the root cause analysis, right? I mean, we often look at the individual when we have a bad outcome. Um, but if you for, – for just culture as a prime example, right? You look at the system first. It, it, is the system – did it set the individual up for an error, right? And, and so you have to look at the system. Human nature is to always look at the individual, 
but but you have to take the individual and the concept of the entire system. Correct. Because I'm an emergency physician, you know, worked at Parkland, trained at Parkland, worked at John Peter Smith, you know, worked at some of the busiest places in the world. And, and you, you put me in a rural critical access hospital, no matter how much I know, the the environment I'm working in affects my ability to do things. And, and so I think we often take that for granted because you can't compare – the care or the system of a huge tertiary care facility that has 200,000 you know, per year volume to a critical access hospital that has a, a doc, a nurse, and, and maybe a secretary who sees you know, a couple thousand patients a year. Regardless of the knowledge and the training of the providers, it just comes down to the, the system to support the infrastructure. Couldn't agree more. And unfortunately, during this pandemic, there were several staff who would work in areas that they, you know, they had the skills to be whatever their license, you know, was. But, but that environment they weren't accustomed to. They didn't know yeah. where everything was. They, they just, they didn't understand that. So, great point. Let Let's pivot here just a little bit more broadly. Um, and this is a big question. So, according to the Commonwealth Fund, the U.S. spends sixteen point eight percent of our gross domestic um, product on healthcare. But yet in the US, we have the lowest outcomes. What what two things, one or two things would you suggest if you could say, hey, we need to do this um, and it would start the path of transforming healthcare to more positive outcomes? So um, we, we deal with this a lot. Uh, ultimately, in, in you know, if you're a payer, then you look at the expend on emergency medicine and say, oh, it's astronomical. In fact, that's the meeting I was just in earlier. You know, they showed, you know, 30 percent of, of healthcare dollars spent in emergency services. And what I brought up is, you know, first of all, how do you define that misuse, right? If, if I'm a payer, I'm retrospectively looking at a person that comes to the emergency department with chest pain and after a thorough workup, I tell them they have a muscle strain. Uh, you know, it's easy to make that call on the back end, not so much on the front end. Amen. But I think um, when you, you look at the healthcare spend and, and the cost is, is you know, it, it's the infrastructure, it's the system um, cost. But we really fail to look at how people get into that system. So if, if you're going to say 70 percent of people in the emergency department should have been somewhere else, the question is, OK, so why is the 70 percent there? I mean, why in, in the 911 world where I live, why do people call 911 for these low acuity complaints? Well, have, have you called your doctor's office lately? Have you called the pharmacy? I mean, what's the first thing on the recording, what it says? If it's an emergency, call, call 911. 911. Well, so they're doing they, – they don't know it's an emergency, but that's what the recording says. And that's what it says at, on your yeah. discharge instructions exactly, too. Exactly, exactly. So they call it. So I, I think that the, the oh, probably the number one failure in this country is um, the primary care system is, is far behind the demand on the primary care system. Um, you know, f there are, I mean, we, we put out a lot of, of primary care physicians here at TCOM. That, that's not the standard in many medical schools. Most people look at that, um, that is a, a difficult lifestyle. It's not something you work eight to five at and you go home and you disengage. 
um, the the reimbursement system for primary care is hugely lacking. So there's really no incentive for people to get in. Um, and, and so now you're seeing large healthcare systems investing in primary care and buying primary care clinics as a loss leader because they're not going to make money at primary care. But what happens is that's a referral network for them into their system to get, you know, the colonoscopies or their, you know, mammograms or whatever. And now, by the way, if you get hospitalized and you're going to come to our hospital. Um, and, and so, you know, if I'm the emperor of the world, I think that's that's one of the things that really needs to change. I mean, I did some work in Havana, uh, in Cuba, um, a, a few years ago, and um, their model is different, right? You get out of medical school and you're assigned a population. You get, you know, a thousand lives. The government provides you a clinic, provides you the staff, provides you housing, provides you everything, and, and you own that, right? So there, there's no, um, there's no incentive or no deterrent for the model like we have here in the U.S. because it's all. It, it's a fee for service, not all fee. I mean, they're trying to move away from that, yeah. but it's it's still primarily a fee for service. And so, if you go to the root cause of most things in healthcare, it, it is, you know, you you reimburse me for doing something. They want to change that, but boy, that's I mean, you you just you know, that's a lot of money in healthcare, um, and and unfortunately, most big players in the healthcare system are are about their piece of the pie. And I know that that sounds really horrible. And if you're a hospital administrator, please, you know, don't take this the wrong way. But sure. right. I mean, they're trying they, to keep the lights they're on. They're trying to keep the lights on. They're, they're trying to innovate um, and they're trying to keep things moving and they're measuring outcomes. Um, you know, but I've been in a lot of big hospital meetings and, and the core measures and the outcomes are talked about, but they're not the focus of what they're talking about be, because it's it's become a business. That's exactly right. And we do need to move to value-based care. Couldn't agree more because fee-for-service, you're managing an episode of care, right? What's your investment in that patient? So, Dr. Beeson, you mentioned earlier that you have worn many hats. Uh, You've been an EMT, a paramedic, an RN, a medical student when I (laughs) met you, as well as a DO. Why did you choose this path? I don't know that I chose it. Why did this cha- this path choose you? I remember I went back to the first question about planning. You know, I'm not a planner, so mm-hmm. I I got into EMT training when I was in high school. So I, I was raised in a public safety world. My father was in law enforcement and and in an early EMS in in the '60s in Texas and in in the Vietnam era. You know, he did some ambulance work in the old funeral homes before he was drafted and did it in the military. So I grew up in that environment. Um, Really, all I ever wanted to do is be on an ambulance, uh, and so I, I I did that in high school, and and then um, at the time, nobody in my family really ever gone to college, so my, my parents were like, "You're going to go to college," and I'm like, "I want to go to college," um, and and so they didn't give me the option, so I thought, "Well, there's a nursing program there. It's only two years. I can, you know, that kind of puts me on the same path of where I already love emergency medicine. I want to do things," and so. I, I did, you know, worked on the ambulance. I did nursing school in the daytime. I did my, it, back then it was called DMT special skills and, and then paramedic training. So it was all kind of simultaneously. I just, I loved the work. I loved what I did. It was a, it was a family within a family. And so um, that's, that's how I ended up there. And then ended up <clears throat> teaching, worked at Tarrant County College, community college years ago as a paramedic instructor, worked at Hughley and, you know, worked at various um, jobs in ERs and ICUs and just, I mean, literally I was going from job to job, but it was, it was not a work for me. It was fun. Um, and then, um, you know, had the goal of wanting to get into a flight medicine 
And so was, you know, obviously very lucky to get into it so early in my career um, and, and worked for some great flight programs. Um, ultimately ended up in Houston working for Dr. Red Duke, was the big famous mm-hmm. trauma surgeon that used to be on TV. Um, you know, and if you were in the flight nursing world, Life Flight was the place. I mean, it was the creme de la creme. And so worked there for, for years, learned a lot. Um, and, you know, started was having a family, um, got married, obviously had our first one on the way and um, was working on finishing a bachelor's degree and um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. But, you know, I figured that I couldn't spend the rest of my life on these helicopters and ambulances and stuff. And then in July of 99, um, I had a catastrophic mechanical failure on one of the helicopters that, that I had gotten off of that morning time. Um, and it ended up, you know, killing three of my friends. And, and that was kind of the decision tree um, of what else do I want to do in life? And so um, Dr. Duke was a great guidance. And, um, you know, I said, hey, if I wanted to go to medical school, what would I have to do? And, and that was kind of it. And literally looked at what I needed as far as the admissions into medical schools. Um, went down to Houston Community College, registered for those couple classes, went to Half Price Books and bought an MCAT review book and read it from cover to cover and took the MCAT and finished those classes and started medical school. I mean, it was literally, there was not a lot of thought or plan that went into it. It just happened. And I remember you when. That's right. And I was here. I came here. Um, you know, we could have stayed in Houston, come back home here to Fort Worth, could have gone out to California. Um, and so my wife, we both grew up here in Fort Worth and we moved back here. I was fortunate enough to um, work for Care Flight all through medical school. And so... Um, Came up, they added a new base the summer before I started medical school. So I worked full-time for them, got the ba- new base up and going, helped, and then went part-time and literally would, you know, be right here in this room. It used to be one of our study rooms where we're recording this at. Um, and then I would um, go fly my night shifts at the Care Flight and come to medical school the next day, and that, that was it. I would like to say there was a lot of thought and plan that went into it, but it was absolutely the stars aligned, and it just happened. Yeah, but you were driven. You were driven because all those things you're talking about, everybody can't do. Um, I don't know that everybody can do. I mean, yes, it, it was easier for me. And medicine is not easy for a lot of people. Um, it's never easy for anybody. But, you know, to me, I'm, I'm, I'm a mechanical thought process kind of person. And, and you know, as, as I have a barn out back of my house where I restore old vehicles, you know, it, it's funny when I look at, a, you know, an engine that was produced in the 60s and it, it's this almost the same components and systems to a body. And when you're able to do that analogy and understand it, it, it becomes a little easier. It's never easy, but. Okay, superhero, I have, a, I have to ask you, what is your current role and what inspires you in your current role? Well, it depends on the day. So um, here at the Health Science Center, I'm, I work with um, under um, the Vice President of Clinical Operations um, and, and work collaboratively with, obviously, Safer Care Texas, work some with TCOM. Um, Tarrant County uh, College um, buys most of my time from the university, so I work with Tarrant County Community College District with the nurses and the wellness centers um, and then their EMS educational programs. Um, outside of the university here, I work for a large national medical company called Global Medical Response. Um, and so that is um, primary medical transportation, but obviously firefighting um, and uh, air medical, fixed wing ambulances, helicopters. Um, we're the FEMA contractor for uh, ambulances throughout the country. So that's a big piece of what I do from the ambulance side. And then for fun is I do the the, um, the Texas A&M Task Force. This, it's out of the Teeks, which is under Texas A&M System, the um, Urban Search and Rescue Team. And, and so that's kind of my fun 
on top of other things. You are a mover and a shaker, aren't well, you? It's, it's, it, is, it is fun. Well, I want to thank you for being here with us today, Dr. Beeson. I want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and your expertise. I also want to thank those that were listening today and encourage you to speak up for Safer Care. Safer Care Texas is a department within the Division of Clinical Innovation, and Speak Up for Safer Care is a product of our department. We'd like to thank our technical producer, Rob Upchurch, for helping us out with this podcast, and we encourage you, our listeners, to speak up. Advocate for yourself, your family, and your colleagues. If you're a healthcare worker, a counselor, subject matter expert, former patient, or a caregiver, and you have a patient safety story that you'd like to share, we'd like to hear from you. Be our next guest. Please contact us through our website, safercaretexas.org. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Safer Care Texas. Thanks again for listening, and as always, speak up for Safer Care.